Steve. What's up, dude? A Healthy Dose is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by Steve Kraus, healthcare partner at Bessemer Venture Partners, and Trevor Price, CEO of Oxian Partners. But it talks, but it don't sing and dance and it don't walk. The guys talk to leaders from various aspects of healthcare and cover personal stories, entrepreneurship, investing, and have a few laughs, many at each other's expense. Well, we both enjoy the art of the conversation. We both have faces that are made for radio. So the- At least eyebrows for me. <laughs> Double chin for me. <laughs> we get a lot of ones right, but we get a lot of ones wrong. One of the most interesting conversations I've had in a long time. If you pardon me, I'd like to say So we're here in Oxion's office in New York City, and we got the chance to sit down with Nat Turner, who is the co-founder and CEO of Flatiron Health, a really, really high-profile oncology informatics company, which is backed by Google Ventures. High-profile and not, Steve. That was one of the, my That's interesting true. parts of the conversation, is that he's clearly not seeking publicity for himself. I loved how he described himself. I felt bad that we were putting him on the hot seat in the podcast, but. Yeah, he's uh, he's definitely describes himself as an introvert, but yet what an effective entrepreneur, right? Yeah. I mean, this is a guy who, well, first of all, selling started snakes. off at 11 years old selling <laughs> snakes, probably my favorite story to date on our podcast. And then basically from that point on was a serial entrepreneur. Yeah. Through college, met his Zach, co-founder. First day at Penn. First day at Penn in the English class. Yep. Uh, they ended up founding a tech company called Invite Media, which was quickly grew and bought by Google. Yep. Uh, I mean, wow, how much success that fellow's had at an early age. And then, you know, decided he wanted to transfer into healthcare and really focus on an industry that's important to him. So I think this was interesting to me, not just because the story's not told, but also because we got to a perspective of, a, of an entrepreneur who's worked both in the tech industry and in the healthcare industry and talks about some of the challenges that entrepreneurs face in the healthcare industry and also share some lessons about what to do and what not to do. Yeah, we've also been fortunate enough to have a series of guests that demonstrate a remarkable string of professional accomplishments, but those are actually in a way overshadowed by their humility, by their personalities, by their, you can just feel their empathy. I mean, these are just good people. And I think Nat is just another example of why healthcare is so great to work in because you've got people who are solving big complex problems, but they're remarkably. Yeah, I know, think that's easy. why you and I really like doing this because oh. we get to, you know, we get to hear a lot about successes, but we also just get to hang around with and learn more about people who are just yeah. generally awesomely good people. They're good people it's solving big problems. So yeah, it really is, and I enjoyed this one. I'm glad he uh, made time for us. Enjoy the stories about snakes. All right, we're excited to have Nat here from Flatiron, who is the co-founder and CEO and probably one of the most promising healthcare IT companies, not only in New York, but in the nation, and definitely one of the most significant focused on oncology. So thanks for being here. You're welcome. Really excited to have you. Let's start at the top. I mean, I'd love to start, just tell us a little bit about you, where you're from, how'd you become an entrepreneur? Yeah, we were just talking about barbecues, so. Yeah, grew up in Texas, actually kind of all over, born there and then high school there, but in between maybe seven different places. Dad was in oil and gas. He started a company, geophysicist, he's like on the exploration upstream side. He started a company 
in, I think it was 1996 or 97 when I was about 10 years old, and I kind of took note of that. I was kind of self-taught in design, the graphic design, like websites. Not so much coding, more like front-end development stuff. Like nights and weekends, it just took um, a passion to it? or. Well, actually, the weird one, which I was trying to avoid, is I had snakes. I kept snakes. As oh, like yes, a, a, we like yeah. weird stories. Yeah. Yeah. Weird and pathologies I, are great. Is it a herpetologist? Yeah, yeah. That that's yeah. actually what I wanted to be, by the way, a herpetologist. But um, I had a lot of snakes, and it was a hobby. And Like how many? Uh, hundreds. Really? Really? Yeah. And yeah. I bred them, and I started selling them online. A website called kingsnake.com where people, it was like a forum, and you could buy and sell snakes and ship them through FedEx. And I needed to build a website for my little side business. And so no, I, how old I, learned, I was 11, maybe 12, something like that. Learned how to build the website using Microsoft front page. Venomous or non-venomous? Mainly non-venomous. Were your parents were they were snake supportive? fans? No. They were supportive. Supportive, not fans, if that makes sense. Supportive of the venture. <laughs> this is awesome. Supportive. Yeah. But, uh, I think know, that's I, how my wife was when I started Oxygen. Supportive, not a fan. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so you had to build the website to, yeah, for your business. So, yeah. So I, I learned. What was how the to, business name? Uh, Snake Productions. <laughs> 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 I haven't thought of that in a long time. That's what it was. I had business cards. You know the whole thing. I love it. Going to conventions, selling them, but you know I had to have a website right. to, yeah. to look legitimate. And so cause I wasn't. You know, I was eleven or twelve. And so I learned front page the kind of predating Dreamweaver and Bugsy's totally, yeah. What you see, what you get applications, and then. Went to some summer school stuff that my mom set me up with at University of Houston to learn, like I think I learned C++ and Java maybe, you know, some backend stuff. Yeah. Then I saw my dad start his company and then I started getting really interested in, you know, really latching on to the entrepreneurial thing. So when did you abandon Snake Productions? When I went to college, I sold most of the snakes to, I had a partner actually that I took on a partner in maybe 2000, like right before I went to high school, 1999 maybe. Were you affected by the dot-com crash? Like No. So I had another business too, which it was a gift card trading website, kind of like... Um, kind of like Raids now. Yeah, exactly. That's one of our portfolio companies. Yeah, yeah it's called Certificate Swap. Like, because yeah. I got a Home Depot gift card for my birthday and I was like... <laughs> I yeah, I want to monetize this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'd rather have a, you know, whatever, Best Buy gift card. So... But the business model wasn't great because back then the value was in the card. It wasn't electronic. Right. You couldn't right. swap serial right. numbers. Right. It was hard for us to take a cut. You'd have to pay on top to you know, swap or barter a gift yep. card. And there was some fraud involved. This is predating like Stripe and a bunch of the good payment processing. But I had that and the snake thing kind of wasn't really a good story in college when you're you know, trying, <laughs> trying to make friends. <laughs> You know, freshman year, like first semester, that's when I started selling. So can I ask a question? Yeah. So that's where the entrepreneurial thing is. This is fascinating. So every entrepreneur talks about their company being their baby, and you've Mm. recently had a kid, and there's an emotional attachment. And then with snakeproductions.com or whatever it was. Mm, That's what it was. I mean, literally, you're... Yeah, you I assume you have an emotional attachment to snakes. Yeah. Was it like hard to just leave the snakes and just sell them wholesale? And go to college, um, or were you just you know, sort of, were, you, I, were you at the point you needed? I think to it was kind of like the time heals and distraction stuff. Like you know, I was very, I had a lot of distractions at Penn, mainly school. Yeah. Um, and, but then I kept starting companies. So okay. I, I had certificate swap. We sold that freshman year too. We started eatnow.com, which was like campus food. It was seamless web for yep. schools, yep. Yep. which was a lot of fun. Zach, my co-founder at Invite, and now Flatiron, we did that together. Zach was a co-founder at eatnow. Yep. Oh, yeah, we met first day of school at Penn. I went to Wharton undergrad, so did he. Not a lot of entrepreneurs went there at the time, maybe still, I'm not sure. So it's not hard to kind of find each other if you're into entrepreneurialism. And, and so, you went knowing you wanted to be an entrepreneur. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, because like I said, with the snake stuff, with certificate swap, like I had found some small bit of success as a high school student to, you know, hey, this is really cool. I'm really thankful I learned the design skills because that meant I didn't have to find someone to do it. You know, I could just prototype stuff myself. 
So yeah, Zach and I found each other. We met in a writing class. He had a friend with an idea, which was this campus food type, off-campus meal plan, whatever you want to call it. So we started building that. You know, it didn't scale very fast. Zach did all the sales. I did the tech. You know, we got a bunch of restaurants at like six schools and then just got to about a few hundred thousand dollars in revenue, but you're invoicing restaurants. They're not great customers. We didn't have the right model like Seamless does or Grubhub where you collect and then pay the restaurant. It was right. the reverse. Um, so we sold that, you know, hundred grand or something like that. Barely got back what we put into it. And then I was an intern at First Run Capital and then Josh Koppelman. Yep. Yep. He hooked me up with another internship at VideoEgg, which is now Say Media. Zach kind of followed me there. And then started Invite Media junior year, which became the first kind of demand side platform right. for online advertising. And then, so you started that junior pen. Yeah. Actually, we started working on it junior year, but we officially incorporated between junior and senior year. And graduated from Penn what year? 08. Oh, so this okay. is 2007. Okay. Yeah, we, so we started in 07, and we sold to Google in 2010. Uh, three years on the dot. Three years and two days. But it was a crazy ride. That's the kind of classics. You raised money? We raised two and a half million bucks. Uh, first round capital led our seed round. Actually, Andy mm -hmm. Bozhart, now at Great Oaks, yeah. first round gave us 250 grand. He had 500 grand seed round, and then we raised two million bucks from Comcast Ventures, and that was it. And um, ended up selling it for Google's two years later, three years later. Actually, within six months of raising the two million. So wow. we. How'd you know how to raise money? Did you have a board member or mentor that. You know, Josh. You so, Josh, I'm, I mean, he's basically been involved in everything I've done post Snakes uh, since <laughs> 2005 um, from First Round. And yeah. he, you know, Chris Freilich, he was one of his partners, still is at First Round. They gave us that first check, and they were very instrumental in introducing us to Got people. It. The process of raising. It's hard. I mean, we haven't done it before. It's not that hard when you have a business that's doing well. Like Invite was really growing. We didn't really know what we had was the problem. Um, we were very naive at you know the whole market. We were just kind of locked ourselves in a room and we're tech guys. And so Josh and Chris really kind of opened us up to other VCs, mm -hmm. like Comcast. That was from their introduction. But I don't think we were great at it. I mean, frankly, we should have raised more. You know, we probably could have gotten better terms. I mean, it, it was not necessarily a success from a fundraising perspective. They should do like a Silicon Valley about you. I mean, your story is amazing. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about and that. Did, is that where you met Krishna was once you got acquired by Google? Or? Yeah. yeah, I remember. So Zach and I, we first met Lindsay Ullman, who's at Google Ventures. Yeah, um, at Sidewalk Labs now. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Zach and I, first time in our life, had an office. It was he and I together in a little like phone room, basically, at Google New York. Lindsay walked in one day, unannounced, and she's like, hey, I'm at Google Ventures. You know, my job is to meet founders of companies that have sold to Google because we think you're going to leave and we want to maybe fund you. Yeah. So we said, oh, you know, we're thinking about healthcare. We actually had a whiteboard with all of our ideas. You know, we were already kind of researching. This is about a year into the integration. And we said, hey, we want to do healthcare. And she said... Why? We had so a lot of reasons. We were very burned out in ad tech. Ad tech is not something you would write in your obituary, for example, you know? So that's number one. It was what we learned a lot. It's a great technical challenge. Healthcare, you know, I have a cousin who was diagnosed with leukemia in 2009, right before we sold. And Zach and I had met him. I have an uncle who's an anesthesiologist, pediatric. We started talking to him. We just started meeting doctors kind of serendipitously and really piqued our interest, not just in cancer, but healthcare broadly. Looked at doing a health insurance company, kind of like Oscar, yeah. what that became was before they started. We looked at building a weird thing like thoracic, you know, med malpractice, you know, company, all sorts of stuff. And so Lindsay introduced us to Krishna. We got on a train. We actually, I think I drove this the first time and we went to see Krishna in Boston, yep. met him at a restaurant, said, hey, we're thinking about health insurance. And he said, I love it. You know, let's put more time in the calendar. Yep. 
And then Krishna kind of became our Josh, but in healthcare, where he started introducing us to many, many, many doctors, hospitals, pharma. Where did Vivek Garapali come into the picture? Vivek was about six months later in New York. We didn't know a lot of healthcare people. Krishna was in Boston. So we had a very small network in New York. And Zach and I were members of a golf club, funny enough. And we asked the head professional, hey, is there anyone we're thinking about starting a healthcare thing? <laughs> this is a true story. And he goes, you need to meet Vivek Garapali. And we're like, who the hell is Vivek Garapali? <laughs> and, you know, we've never heard of him. He's like close to our age. You know, he's brick and mortar healthcare entrepreneur. Yeah. And uh, knew nothing about tech. Uh, hope he's owns insane. CarePoint he's Health System. And, yeah, yeah, he owns a bunch of hospitals and uh, now a Medicare Advantage insurance company. Yeah. But yeah, so those two people in particular were very instrumental in the founding of Flatiron. Yeah. And a couple other people, Michael Greeley, who was at Flybridge at the time, now at uh, Flare. Yeah. Just, I don't know why, I mean, he's just out of the goodness of his heart, just introduced us to everyone. It was awesome. Yeah. Vivek, Krishna, and Michael, basically. It's a good core group of people yeah. to help steer you into healthcare. We needed it, and we didn't know anyone. So, so the mission of Flatiron is pretty inspiring, right? It's mm-hmm. to make a difference in the fight against cancer, mm-hmm. I believe. It's a pretty bold statement. Mm-hmm. Where are you in that journey? Yeah, our mission is also a little deeper. It's we want to accelerate research and improve treatment, just a little more specifically. And so I'll just, real quick on both of those. So on the improved treatment side. So we started in June of 2012, two days after we left Google, and we're pretty far along with providing cloud-based software that helps cancer centers treat patients better. So specifically electronic medical records and analytics, kind of looking at whatever you're doing clinically. I'm sorry, does that sit side by side with Epic or? Actually, so not many people know this, most of cancer care is not treated in a hospital, where okay. hospitals are the ones that use Epic. Right. Most cancer, like close to 80% when we started, it's down a little bit, down to probably 70, is treated in private practice. Got community, it. in the community. Yeah, community oncology. More often than not, hospitals might be the initial diagnosis, but right. all your treatment's gonna be yeah, in yeah, private right. practice. Yeah. And what we care about is the treatment. Diagnosis, to be honest, is it's a whole different world. We're not you know, in that space. We kind of take on the patient once they hit the oncologist. Mm-hmm. You know, dermatologists, all these other people play a role in the, in the diagnosis. And so, yeah, so we have an EMR, that electronic medical record, that focuses on community oncology. And, you know, we have a lot of community oncologists, probably close, I don't know, a few thousand, for example. Mm-hmm. And there's only 10,000 oncologists in the whole country. So on the improved treatment side, you know, we've basically successfully gotten our software out to a double-digit percentage, probably 20 to 30% of the doctors in the United States that treat cancer. And the software is much better than previous software. So it provides things like centralized content, like here are the regimens that the FDA approves to treat certain cancers. And you can just search kind of like, you know, Google auto completion and, you know, smarter because there's hundreds of thousands. These are protocols which tell yeah. the community oncologist if they have X biomarker and yep. a certain matches up the patient to the regimen. Yeah. And, you know, kind of decision support esque, if you will. Did um, you develop that yourself or was that developed? previously and you incorporated into your product? It depends. We actually acquired components of it. We home built certain components. We licensed certain components. There's an organization called the National Comprehensive Cancer Network that builds the guidelines. Yep. We're not telling doctors how to treat. We're right. integrating content from others, like nonprofits or FDA and government. And you know we license that content and integrate it. So it's kind of a open platform that we just want to be agnostic to the content. Whoever says the right way to treat cancer, if that's what the doctor believes, will integrate it and have it at their fingertips. 
Um, so we're up to, I think, 1.5 million active patients right now that are wow. being treated on our software. How many cancer patients are there active in America? About four to five times that. Okay. So yeah, we're one in four, one in five patients. You know, 1.8 million new diagnoses, but obviously they're patients who return, thankfully, year after year. So it's not just within a year patients die. And then on the Accelerate Research side, so that's the other part of our business. So we're earlier there. So in the last two years, we've started to provide our data. Really, I should say, you know, the community oncologists, and now we work with academics on top of Epic where we aggregate all of this information. We de-identify it, not just for the patient, but also the physician and the site. So you can't identify where the patient's treated or who's treating them. And we provide that information to Accelerate Research. So that includes the FDA. We give information like lung cancer, you know, treatment patterns to the FDA, for example. Mm -hmm. We give that data to drug developers who want to treat patients you with lung. give, you market and sell that data? Or we actually give it away to the FDA. We don't charge. We don't charge a lot of the academics. Um, if it's a nonprofit cause, pretty much, you know, yep. there's no monetary gain for Flatiron. But if there is a clinical trial or a economic incentive, say a pharma company wants to understand the safety profile of their drug, absolutely, yep. we're charging a subscription, you know, to be. So we're, feel, we're pretty far along there now. But. From an outsider's perspective, you're a really, really well-capitalized EMR company, mm -hmm. right? So you've raised a lot of money to be building an mm -hmm. oncology EMR. And then if you look at it, there's several different ways that an organization like Flatiron could go. You could start mm -hmm. capitating yep. and taking risk on cancer patients. You yep. could, as you've already described, find ways to monetize the data that you're yep. aggregating through this cloud-based platform. You could also start to develop therapeutics yourself. Yep. They could do RCM billing. <laughs> Which services. we're doing, actually, yeah. So we didn't start Flatiron to do RCM. We didn't start Flatiron to provide data to pharma for market share. You know, what we started the company for was to accelerate research and improve treatment. You know, we'll do things that our community oncologists need us to do. So, for example, revenue cycles, RCM is something that they need. Mm -hmm. And so we'll provide it. It's not, again, why we started the company, right. but we have a big team doing that. It's profitable, but it's by no means our core focus, right? So we bolt things on. Think of us as like a vertically integrated software, tech-enabled services company, but the vertical is oncology. Do you see yourself becoming effectively a specially pharma GPO and aggregating so that's, the that's what I was getting. So I'm not convinced that being a GPO, being a you know, capitation model or platform improves treatment or accelerates research is the thing. So if the practices want us to do that, maybe. Yeah. But what we're really being asked to do is accelerate their clinical trials, help them run better businesses, revenue cycle, for example. Mm -hmm. Helps GPO though, right? Not really. GPO is more for drug purchasing. Yep. And there's plenty of existing companies Got in that it. space, like McKesson and Amerisource and Cardinal and yep. others. That wouldn't really play to our advantage. And they're not asking us to do that, um, yep. importantly. But to your point earlier, I think the direction we're going, which is why we started the company, is to push trials into the community. I want to practice in Dayton, Ohio, to have the same clinical trial portfolio that Sloan Kettering has, right? And the patients that walk into Dayton are under no disadvantage for being where they live, right? And that's in my family, when my cousin was diagnosed in Augusta, Georgia, you're, you know, pediatric case, you're not, St. Jude isn't in Augusta. Yeah. So, you know, why is that fair? So... It's a geographical constraint with trials. There's a demographic constraint, socioeconomic constraints. And so we're trying to bring all those constraints down yep. so that trial access is higher and there's more accrual. And that could lead to us building drugs ourselves. That could lead to us having deeper partnerships with drug companies. That's a reason why our last round was led by Roche, the big pharma company, because we just want to be in bed 
frankly, with those that are on the cutting edge of research. I love your mission. Can we just double click on it for a second? Because, yeah. you know, improved treatment, you have an EHR, yep. and we want to talk a little bit about that. You have an analytics yep. platform. How do you guys actually go the next step and measure, are you really improving treatment? Because those are systems of record and at mm -hmm. best they're an analytics overlay. Like how do you as a company know that yeah. you're, what do you measure? So the problem in oncology is there's no single agreement on what outcome is, right? right? Because you could say it's overall survival, but you know, certain drugs, you live longer, but you're in the hospital every day. And that's not really, you know, so there's no real agreement on it. Our current way we do this is we partner with the oncologists and figure out, are they seeing more patients? Are they spending more time with the patients versus less time, which is often the case with companies like Epic? there's more access to trials. So one of the big things we look at is accrual rate. What percent of your patients go on a study, which is a pretty well agreed upon measure of quality. And that's why academics are considered high quality because there's more trials and more participation in trials. One and your software actually helps them with it. Oh yeah, accrual. so for example, when you log into our EMR as a physician, in the background, we're analyzing your patients to find out which of those might be eligible for trials. It's up to you as the doctor to have the conversation with the patient, but one of the biggest problems is there's 10,000 trials available and you have 37 patients in a day and you have five minutes with each patient. You know, there's no chance that that doc is matching those trials to those patients in real time. So our software does that, you know, maybe not for every trial today, but for ones that we're, and the docs are super hot on and think are very relevant, you know, we'll put alerts in the system. We have a software we launched called Onco Trials. It's a workflow in addition to think of it as more of a machine learning approach to identifying patients for trials. And, and we've seen accrual raise at these sites pretty soon. So accrual measurement, practice yep. growth. Are you also measuring physician variance according to protocols or are we not there yet in oncology? We, or we, precision medicine, are you able to actually take the next it thing, to, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so the other thing we're doing is we're increasing access for next generation sequencing. So in our EMR, you can order and soon enough get results. We're doing this actually in 11 of our 280 practices where you can get the discrete lab values. So for example, if you have an EGFR gene mutation, it shows up in the EMR in a field, not in some PDF hidden in a document storage system like Epic. And if that's in a field, our system picks it up and says, oh, you know, Tarceva is a drug that targets EGFR. And the doc, there's no chance the doc misses that because it's literally right there in the system saying, here's what you should you know. Amazing. Something that's basic yeah. used in any other industry but by is, the way, that's is revolutionary sense. here. That's common sense for doctors that what we're doing is just making the workflow. Understood. Yeah. yeah. So that there's no chance they miss it. Yeah. Because, you know, sometimes foundation medicine report. Yeah. It's won't, buried. Won't, yeah. Right. Like they'll miss it. And it's not their fault. There's 400 other documents. But with a million and a half patients, mm -hmm. you will, if you haven't already, you will be able to very quickly develop very tightly defined cohorts of patient types with genetic profiles or with, yeah. with, you know, you should be able to start to really fundamentally influence care if that's a path you want to follow. Yeah, so the plan, and we're not there, that's why I said we're early in this, is we're doing all this research with pharma and FDA. The plan is to bring that research back into the EMR at some point. Yeah. Uh, the problem is there's, it's a liability road. We don't want to be in the business, I've said this a couple times, of telling doctors how to treat. You know, we want to be the best at integrating whatever research is out there, published, FDA approved. But we can imagine a world where our EMR says, hey, there's 100 other patients like yours in front of you in our network. Here are the drugs they got. Here's the outcomes they achieved. 
But again, there's some risk there, medical risk, that we just were being cautious about. So that's the whole vision. We'll see when we get there. I want to spend a minute on sort of your acquisition of Altos, yep. which was the EHR yep. that you acquired in 14. Yep. You first started off as an analytics company, or you had a bigger mission, but you were really an analytics yep. overlay. Was it because you sort of realized that you needed to be the heart-lung machine in order to you know, do what you want to do? What was the reason for the acquisition? Yeah, so the biggest thing is EMRs, even Epic, aren't developed enough where you can integrate as a third party the types of things that you or we would want to integrate. So for example, I'll just use the trial one. If you want to push alerts about a trial into an EMR, every EMR is different. Some don't have APIs, most don't. <laughs> right, sadly. Most of the APIs are just for back-end like, data retrieval. Like, so you can build an app. They're not you know, changing the workflow or the UI of that EMR. So we came to this realization that doctors aren't logging into an analytics tool during their physician visits. Right. They might log in after they're done. Most likely not. They're too busy. Way too busy. And it makes sense. Like if I was a doctor, which I'm not, I would try and be spending as much time as I could with the patients, not analyzing my stats you know, <laughs> afterwards. So we were getting a lot of engagement with administrators and CEOs of these practices. But again, our mission was improved treatment. So we needed to go, and I hate you know, to overuse the term, but the full stack approach, where we didn't want to be an EMR, but we felt like we had to be you know, to do the kind of things. We needed to be point of care so that those things like trial alerts or, hey, a new drug was approved by the FDA yesterday and your patient's eligible you know, based on the label. That kind of stuff you can't do as an API partner of Epic. <laughs> totally makes sense. You know what's interesting to me is that you're sort of the prototypical tech entrepreneur who comes into healthcare and like going and acquiring an old school EHR that, when was Altos actually built? Thankfully, it started in 04. So not too old. Which is super new. Relative for right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it was browser-based, okay. which was Unfortunately, Internet Explorer. But it's not Entrepreneur Venture Capital 101. They had so, no, fun, no funding. Yeah. So tell me a little bit Management about Management team stay involved or did you transition them out? For the most part, they did not. Um, the team was great. There was about 50 to 60 employees, very similar size and deal size to Invite, actually. So we had a lot of experience on the other side of it, you know, on their side. Yeah. And, you know, we integrated the company within six months. Everyone was functionally integrated at Flatiron. So engineers reporting engineering and so forth. We were selling things to the same customer. Yeah. Right. So it made sense. So we integrated the sales team, stuff like that. Did you have to rebuild the so product the, or? Yeah, so the thing we did, and we still go back and forth on this even today. So we're three years in. We, we acquired it in April of 2014. It was written in .NET. It was Internet Explorer based, which by the way is actually a good thing. <laughs> the fact that it was at least IE and not through Citrix and VPN right. and all this crap. Right. .NET, we had no one at Flatiron who understood .NET. We had one guy who had worked at Microsoft, it happened to be our CTO, and then he, basically started recruiting team members from core Flatiron who would be interested in learning. And the transition, if you're a great engineer, from something to something is not that hard. Yeah. So, but you have to convince someone, hey, .NET. Right, right, you're gonna have a and, job yeah. in the future. Yeah. <laughs> and so what we did is, is we, we kind of rebuilt a lot of the backend. So we basically modernized using things like you know, MVC framework and a JavaScript front end and things you know, like Angular, if you're familiar, yep. yeah, this yeah, kind of, of stuff where without the docs noticing, you know, ripped yep. out the plumbing. And then, we're not there yet, but about half our users have now, we've, we have this new thing called the refresh where it's a completely visual upgrade. And it's no, no functionality differences. It just looks way new, you know, way different. And it's optional and you can click a little button because it's already browser-based, was my point before, you can just flip it. And you can go back to the classic version. But all the new features we're launching are now only in the refresh. And so it's basically, it's been a very strategic, you know, sequencing of events. And you know, we're gonna wake up three and a half years later and everyone will be on a modern 
we're developing in Python instead of .NET and stuff like that. The beauty is there's no data conversion, which is a huge problem with EMR switches. So if you buy an old school on-prem EMR and you build a cloud right. one, you have to migrate everyone's data. Right. That's a huge medical informatics and patient safety issue. Um, you know, if you bring over labs and they're different, you know, for example, you risk the patient safety. So we didn't have to do any of that. We just modernized it. And preparing for the conversation, Steve and I were remarking that for being such a high profile group of investors and successful entrepreneurs. Raised $330 million. Yeah, you're remarkably low Did profile. <laughs> you're remarkably low profile from a media and externally facing standpoint. And with the cancer moonshot and Vice President Biden driving this and, mm -hmm. and now with what's emerging out of Nant Health. And can you talk about A, the decision making behind that? And then the other side that I'd love to explore is like when you are taking on our friend Chrissy Fard wrote an article of why does it seem to be a disproportionate number of these kind of scandal cases are occurring mm -hmm. in healthcare? When you wake up every day with a mandate to try to help cure cancer, that is a powerful mission, but it, it also is such a powerful mission that it could cause an organization to do things that challenge ethics and integrity. And I'm just wondering mm -hmm. on both sides, like how mm -hmm. you think about that in leading Flatiron. Yeah, I'll answer the second one first. Yeah, I mean, there's Theranos, what the Patrick Sunshang stuff lately, 23andMe had a rough patch. I think a lot of it, people don't have an appreciation for how hard the problems are and how important the regations are. We certainly have that appreciation. I but well, you that, didn't have that appreciation before. No, 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 no we had like the appreciation. We didn't have the knowledge. Like when we got into Flatiron Oncology, we were very aware that you know the FDA was going to be our biggest stakeholder because if they don't approve whatever methods we're doing you know for example if you're an EMR and they and you push out a medical decision that is wrong like you know you're on the hook for that yeah. um, we had a great appreciation for it thanks to a few advisors that we met and Zach and I, I think generally tend to be very pragmatic about this stuff I mean I always say this too if Flatter was our first company I think it would be very different. You know, when we went through Invite, we learned a lot of things. And when we got to Google on how to, you know, oh, you have a security team. PII in ad tech is a big deal. PHI, protected health information in healthcare, is an even bigger deal. Yeah. And so, you know, we had a taste of, you know, how important these things were. And I think that helped. You know, again, I look at Patrick Sunshang stuff, the Nant Health stuff lately. And, you know, I think some people are very successful in one thing and think that that just will make them successful in healthcare. But there's a, there's, there things. has to be an internal conflict of yeah. that some people manage and other people don't about being overly optimistic or overly promotional or That's overly, the start of mentality. Every, I mean, you have to be somewhat insane to start a company and you have to- you know, Especially one that's trying to cure cancer. <laughs> First of all, we're not trying to cure it. We're trying to help others cure it on right. the platform. But, you know, you have to oversell every start founder and CEO does this, right? You have Absolutely. To, yeah, and, and in healthcare, it's very easy to get ahead of yourself because it's not as fast to have the actual progress catch up. You know, like we're four and a half years in and like we're barely breaking the water, the surface yeah. on what is possible in helping people cure cancer. Like we're not even close yeah. and we're four and a half years in, which is why we had to raise so much capital. And so 
I think this is what happened with Theranos, is you have this vision, which is a great vision, and it's going to take 10 years to get to it instead of four, and then all of a sudden you've oversold, and then you, you have to catch up, and most industries like ad tech, you can do that. You can oversell by a year or two, and then have the engineering team and product team catch up, but healthcare, things happen. Yeah, the promise is larger, but the time is longer, and yeah. you have to have the patience to where the two connect, right? In part of my language, like, shit happens. Like, you know, I'll give you an example, like when we were doing the analytics story back in 2013, one of the EMRs, the one we bought, said, no, sorry, you can't integrate. I don't care if our practices want to. We're busy building meaningful use features. Right. We're like, okay, all of a sudden 30% of the market was off limits, you know, because that was their market share. You know, that's not okay. And so then that added two years to our runway of getting to scale on the patient data side. But I think what I'm pushing on is you seem, maybe it's because of the relationships you built and your advisors and the people mm -hmm. who have kind of embraced you as young entrepreneurs, it almost seems like you were able to raise the money you raised without being publicly overly without promotional, hyping without much. hyping too much. Because I think what happens is, I think people overhype to raise money, then can't fulfill the hype, and then it starts to push their ethics. And they, because mm. I don't think Theranos was just, you know, we advanced, sold what we had. I mean, there was like. Well, again, I think this goes back to the point before. Like, same thing Zach and I could raise that. money largely because we came out of a success story with Google, like we're free willing to admit that. We would not have been able to raise $330 million if this was our first startup. We probably would have had to, you know, hype to TechCrunch, oh, we're curing cancer and, and you know, make that happen. But it, first of all, it's actually funny enough, not very intentional. Zach and I are massively introverted and we hate talking to people outside of Flatiron. Like it's just terrifies us to- You're a great podcast. Yeah, are you, are you okay? <laughs> well, the reason I'm here is I'm friends with you guys. <laughs> but we cannot, it's not a, hey, we think we should be stealth. It's just, you know, we just would prefer to work in a small group of people. Yep. And that just, I think, culturally, you know, leads to us being more insular. But we're very outward focused with our partners, like the FDA and with yeah. Pharma and with our clients. Like we're extremely extroverted with our people that matter, so to speak, you know, that, that are partners and clients. But as it relates to fundraising, as it relates to press, as it relates to conferences or, you know, networking events, like you won't see us there. And, yeah. and that's largely because also we just have better things to do. Like it's hard. And so we're recruiting, we're building. Yeah. But yeah, on the fundraising stuff, again, I, I kind of chalk that up to initially, like we raised an $8 million seed round. That was because Google sure. Ventures saw what we had built at Invite and were willing to give Zach and I a chance. Can, can we just stick on this for a little bit? And you know, you're obviously been a successful entrepreneur in tech mm -hmm. and in healthcare. Mm -hmm. I'd love to get some perspective on the two and also any lessons you could share with the entrepreneurs who are healthcare versus tech. Yeah, and what you've kind of learned in straddling the two industries, anything that you know you could share with our audience. First of all, healthcare is massively underinvested in from a tech perspective, so there's huge opportunity. For example, there's a massive opportunity to do what Flatiron's doing, but in cardiovascular or rheumatology or any of these other specialties, there's just nothing going on in some of those. Um, I mean, you, Zach and I have a Evernote note, I think, of just 50 different Someone's talking. Wow. Yeah. Welcome to New York. <laughs> yeah. 50 different ideas. I mean, so there's a ton of greenfield. Two, it takes more money than you ever thought you have to raise. So I always recommend to folks, raise more than you ever would think you need, you know, if you can, and you know, build. Accordingly, there's a tax you pay, about 30% HIPAA regulations, and, which are, I think, well-intentioned good. You just have to build that in. A third of your engineering team is going to be building things that- A you, third of your engineering team yeah. is due to regulatory and compliance. Yeah. Basically. Well, especially if you're an EMR. But, yeah. You know, yep. Things like the security of data, very things you need to do, yep. but it's just, you know. If tax. you don't do it well, you're out of business. Right, right. it's a table stakes as we call it at Flatiron. Three, you know, there's not necessarily a hockey stick type of play like Snapchat or these other B2C plays. It's very hard to aggregate patients very quickly. Healthcare is not a one thing. It's 
Brian Roberts talked about this, it's, it's 100 micro segments, micro industries. You can segment them by specialty, by types of doctor, by types of patient, by disease, by country, by state even, by insurance or not, like all these things, they're micro segments. And it's really hard to scale very quickly. So you just need to plan for it to be five or six years minimum, unlike ad tech where you can do something in three years. But the payoff is huge. I mean, the rewarding factor, you know, forget just the economics, the ability to interact with patients is amazing. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, and, and it's, you're doing well by doing good. So we have no issue recruiting because, you know, one of our things we do in recruiting is once you start at Flatiron, you shadow an oncologist at one of our clients and, and you see patients for 30, yeah, yeah. 30 minutes a time, 10 times in a day. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty hard to beat. And then you go get to build software that helps their day. It's know. not like shattering an ad server. Right. Yeah, it's not serving pixels. We were a pixel farm. Yeah. And that's and, what I was You saying. and Zach are on now what year of your entrepreneurial partnership? 13. Talk to us about that relationship. Yeah, he's my, well, first Are you wife. friends outside? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, do you guys socially hang out together and your spouses hang out together and your families? Or do you create boundaries? And I think there's more boundaries. I think, first of all, now, you know, I'm father and our parent now, and we're both married. So we, I think before that all happened, you know, yes, we had lived together for five years, effectively. And yeah. then we slept, we didn't have apartments. We slept in the office in, in by the first two years. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. My designated spot was the arrow bed next to the conference table in the conference room. Awesome. And he was under the conference table. So we rented an apartment, a three bedroom apartment. And that was, we had 40 employees there, showers and things. We were the only ones wow. that lived there. But yeah, it's a super interesting serendipitous think we happened to be in writing class together and we were perfect for each other. How do you divide the world? Yeah. Have you always divided the world the same? No, and it's, it's, it's shifted back and forth. The big thing we do is functional. So he's product and inch and I'm everything else. And it tends to be, you know, relatively 50, 50 people wise. No one reports to both of us, but it's actually flipped. Cause I was actually the technical one in the beginning, but then he actually became much better at leading a product and inch work. And I took more, he was a great sales guy initially. I hated, I was, Again, introvert, I couldn't do it. And so, but then I picked that up. And I've really taken to the strategic side of stuff like fundraising and acquisitions. I don't know why. I never really liked it, but I really like it now. So that's kind of how we divide the world now. But again, it's shifted a lot. Invite, we changed roles a couple times and responsibilities. The other thing is, you know, we don't make decisions without each other. Every week we have an hour. We have to do this now. We're not in the same room anymore together. We used to be. So we had to block time now on a weekly basis to just be in the same room. So yesterday we were in the room for an hour together just to, there's no agenda. It's just whatever's on either of our minds, we just you know, talk about. Do you battle? Absolutely. How do you resolve tension and resolve conflict? It depends on the thing. If he's much more direct, I'm more of a mediator. You know, conflict avoiding, but then I'll stir up the pot and then let him go. And then I'll, we'll pull people in. Typically we can figure it out on our own and then one of us will just say, well, I'm going to do this. And then if the other person feels like it's the really wrong decision, he or I will speak up, but then otherwise we'll just trust and proceed. But we'll pull in someone, you know, kind of as a arbiter, you know, yeah. who said, you know, hey, what do you think? Or is Zach being an idiot? And, is Matt being an idiot? And you have incredible, like Amy yeah. Abernathy as an example. Like yeah. how do you involve other great, strong, powerful leaders in your organization where there's this dynamic between the two of you that has been together for, how do they feel a part of, you know, the Hamilton? How are they in the room? <laughs> it's been hard. Initially, it was harder. I think now, you know, we've had to adopt things like leadership team meetings. Zach and I cede decision-making authority to a group, stuff like that. We've created multiple leadership teams, one for research, one for provider, for example. And if Zach or I think this is the way to go, 
we're one voice, we're of five, not, you know, mm -hmm. it's not necessarily a dictatorship. There. I want to focus on a couple of big macro themes, yeah, in, in oncology. Let's just start with it. The biggest one that's gotten the most political attention, the Cancer Moonshot Initiative. Curious, like Biden's one. Yeah. Yep. Where are we? What's your view on it? Well, first of all, it's a massive awareness generator, which is awesome. It wasn't as much funding as people think. They they had a billion dollars. You know, that's great. First right. of all, every dollar counts. But it would have been great if it was ten or more. Or hundred. Uh, yeah. Yeah, because it needs that. I think the coolest thing it did, most impactful, was the FDA Center of Excellence around oncology, where it functionally integrated a team just for oncology around Rick Padzer, which is, was very needed. Instead of oncology getting thrown into a general bucket, it's now specialized. That should speed things up with approvals. But in terms of research collaborations, I mean, he's really just preaching to folks, hey, you need to collaborate, which I think is what he should be doing. But in terms of getting folks like academics and pharma to share IP together and all that, we have a long way to go. Yep. So I don't think that is solved. But again, the, the biggest you know, thing that has happened that is making a difference, I think, is the FDA reorg. If you were... Which is still the case, even though Trump is, is there. Right. If you were president for a day or head of the FDA, what, what would be the one or two or three things you'd do to cure this disease or at least help to? I would require companies that get NIH funding or academics funding to run a trial to be required to have those trial results public. You think opening up the data... The easiest way to do that is if you get government funding for your trial. You can't ask Roche necessarily. Yeah, I understand. But that trial data should go in a central repository. Second, if you get Medicare reimbursement, let's say you're Sloan Kettering, your patient data should be made accessible by the government, Medicare, or a government-sponsored entity. Could be Flatiron, could be anyone, whereby you can't have your patient data under lock and key. And that's not the EMR's problem. I mean, you can go and integrate with Epic. Sloan Kettering and others, I don't mean to pick on them, every hospital, every private practice has the right right now to say, nope, it's our data. But 50% of their patients are reimbursed by Medicare. So the government could come in and say that the data's open. And the third thing, there's this thing you can use data, patient data. I, you, any of us could have patient data on behalf of a hospital if it's for treatment, payment, or operational support. They need to add an R in there for research. So if you want to get data from Sloan, you have to currently provide treatment payment or operational support. Research doesn't count. So if they add research into that TPO acronym, TPRO, then you know more research could happen. Those would be my three things. And finally, at least for me, on the oncology care models, on sort of value-based payment around oncology, I know actually Flatiron has a stake in this, or at least you have a mm -hmm. business offering in this. Mm -hmm. It's not knees and hips, right? Mm -hmm. Which is much more of a homogeneous population. Yep. Cancer by definition is heterogeneous. How do you think this plays out and how optimistic are you that this will actually change Care. Oncology care model is not a bundled system yet, at least, so it doesn't really matter what type of disease. It does if you want to get really intelligent about shared savings, but really what it is is they pay you about $160 a month to treat patients who are getting chemotherapy and do a few more extra things, such as have your office open after hours so you can hydrate patients or treat nausea vomiting so they don't go to the ER, you know, things that have call center, you know, stuff like that. So really it's a new care delivery model, it's not a new payment model per se. But I'm very optimistic because oncology practices are under massive reimbursement pressure. Drug pricing, everyone knows about, is right. you know getting a lot of pressure, and that's and where a lot of profit, lot of comes, profit from. comes from. Profit comes for the physicians. Yeah, so. and so th there needs to be a new model where you know you pay more of a fixed monthly rate. Significant, I think it has to be because oncologists have a very hard job. And quality measures, I think they're overdone right now. But OCM is moving to a path of 
easier compliance and Flatiron along with other companies are really trying to make that even easier for docs by automatically doing it for them via analytics. I think it has a, a lot of promise. A lot of practices have signed up for it and are making additional revenue from it. Providing additional services is part of it. It's not just free cash, but um, I think it's making a difference. We definitely see fewer ER visits and, and hospital admissions at the practices. At the that, practices are doing it. Yeah, Interesting. Which I think is a great quality. That's an outcome. Yeah. Right? I think it's to everyone's benefit except the hospitals to, to reduce utilization in that area. All right. He's an introvert and he also has a 1030 meeting, so we got to get <laughs> this guy off the hot seat. <laughs> Thank you so much. Of course, uh, pleasure. Talk about being an entrepreneur, and we know time's limited, and so I think Steve and I both super appreciate you coming here and spending time with us. Yeah, thanks. Thanks yeah, for having us. Thanks. thanks for listening to a healthy dose. Please subscribe through iTunes, and if you have any suggestions for topics or guests, email the guys at steve at bvp.com or trevor at oxyandpartners.com. We do okay.